Hi, my name is AJ Benza, host of the Fame is a Bitch podcast. You're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And please share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. If you love the podcast, you can support it at any level by visiting glow.fm slash potabing. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with AJ Benza. AJ was a celebrity reporter and insider during the Sopranos era, and his TV show was featured in the series. There's a cool story about how it came to be involving James Gandolfini. Besides being a fan of the series like us, He's also a huge Rocky head. So naturally, we talk about that, and he shares stories about getting cast in Rocky Balboa and reading lines with Sylvester Stallone. As you might imagine, AJ is chock full of stories, and this episode is packed with them, including one about a sit-down he had with Tommy Mottola regarding Mariah Carey. That's all I got. I promise... 5.03 will be coming out soon. I apologize for the delay. Thank you, AJ. Thank you, listeners. Here's AJ Benza. AJ, thank you for being here. My pleasure, man. I enjoy the show. So do a little stage setting for listeners that may not be familiar with you and your work. Where did you come from and how did you get here? Obviously, from the sound of my voice, I'm a New Yorker. Born in Brooklyn, raised in Long Island, lived in Greenwich Village for years. I was a New York Daily News gossip columnist in the 90s. And that sprung me uh, from there to getting work in Los Angeles. Before I knew it, I was doing uh, the gossip show on the E! Channel, which was the precursor to TMZ. This is early 90s. That's how I know you. Really? I think you know me for the second show I did, which was Mysteries and Scandals on the E! Channel. That was the big show I got when I moved to LA in 97. And from there, oh, I just, I've done a bunch of stuff out here, but Mysteries and Scandals was, was a big one. I had my own talk show for a bit for the E! Channel, AJ After Hours. I've done a bunch of shows for the Reels channel called Case Clothes with AJ Benza. Um, anything associated, and a lot of things associated with Hollywood and crime and noir and scandal and mystery. If a Hollywood celebrity dies, you usually see me talking about them. Yeah. yeah you kind of yeah. like car- And I sprung into acting since then, and now I podcast my own show. So, but, but it's all kind of based around that mystery, scandal, death, you know, uh, atmosphere. Rewind for a second. What is the A and what is the J? Alfred Joseph. Okay. Never been called that, though. It's just my uh, birth name. Any connection to family? Is it named after Yeah, anybody? my father was Alfred. Alfredo, actually. Um, that's my name as well. But AJ was something they called me from the jump. And only my kindergarten teacher called me Alfred. Everyone since AJ, my high school buddies called me Alfie, which is a weird thing. Uh-huh. Some of them still call me Alf. And no, my nickname is Pope. That's why my email is Pope. And a lot of things associated with me uh, use the Pope word. But yeah, I, it, AJ's been from uh, from five years old on. How did you carve this niche of scandal noir Hollywood? Completely by accident. It's I all was, accidental. Uh, yeah, no, I was. There's, uh, no, there's no whiz bang story. No, well, I was a sports writer. I went to college for journalism. I got my degree, and um, I didn't want to go to other cities to work for a newspaper. I didn't want to go to Cleveland or, or Sacramento and start at oh. fifteen thousand a year. Well, 
just a small city outside yeah. of New York. I want to be in New Sac- York. I'm Are you really? Sacramento, oh, yeah. wow. But I left Sacramento to go to New well, York. Sh- okay. We don't, New Yorkers don't want to leave New York. And especially if you grow up reading or delivering the daily news like I did as a kid, you want to write for them because all your heroes were in the paper. Jimmy Breslin, Mike Lupica, uh, Mike McAllary, a lot of guys, Dick Young, that I read every day. I wanted to work where they worked. Unglamorous, but I liked the newsroom. I liked the fact that guys went out and had two martinis at lunch. You could curse. You could still be a man. So I got, I eventually hooked up with Newsday, which was the big paper on Long Island. And I was writing high school and college sports, a little bit of pro. And uh, I was married to my first wife, high school sweetheart. And after five years, we got divorced. And I had a little bit of money in the bank. I sold the house. And I started to go out into New York City. Now, for five years, I'm married. I'm a typical guy. On the weekends, I was going to Home Depot and redoing bathrooms and changing walls and stuff. And um, I went to, um, I started going out. I started seeing some celebrities, and it really started to, like, shock me into, oh, this is really cool. I like seeing actors and models. And and one day, I sent a letter, an email, to the woman who was editing the New York Newsday gossip column called Inside New York. That's Linda Stacy. She was tremendously witty, smart, sarcastic gossip writer. I sent her, look, I went to a party. I saw this and this. And she said, yeah, that's really good. She was getting older. By that, I mean maybe 50, maybe. And I was like 31. She said, why don't you go to some parties and tell me if you see anything? I'll pay you 25 bucks an item. I said, yeah, I'll go to Sure. So, um. What's an item? What do you mean? A piece? If I have a little, a little story on somebody, gotcha. you know. And I, one night I had the balls. Intel. Yeah. I had the balls one night to go, I'm going to sneak into Vogue. Vogue magazine's 100th birthday party. It was some ludicrous thing I could never get into. I think it was at the Museum of Natural History. Some some phenomenal spot. Spotlights, Klieg lights. And I put on an outfit. And I decided I'm going to crash and get in there. Of course, I couldn't get in. But at the same time I couldn't get in, of all people, Mickey Rourke was being thrown out. And I was a huge Mickey Rourke fan. In fact, that's how my nickname Pope came about because of the Pope at Greenwich Village. It's the first movie I went to go see being made in New York City. I fell in love with him and Eric Roberts. And here comes my guy being thrown out. Uh, he was just drunk and being rowdy, and they didn't want him in there. And he looks at me. I looked at him. We did not know each other. And he said, what happened to you? And I said, nah, I, I can't get in. And I couldn't believe I was talking to him. And he said, uh, come on, get in the car with me. We're going to go downtown to a club. And in, in, in an hour or two, everybody in there is going to be with us. I jump in his black town car. His driver takes us downtown. Within seconds, Bob Dylan's on the radio. Mickey's singing, knocking on heaven's door. We go to this little club called Rex. That was exciting enough for me. But lo and behold, two hours later, Naomi Campbell, uh, Cindy Crawford, Christy Tarlington, Linda Evangelista, Bruce Willis, you name it. They're in this little room. And I started to see some crazy, you know, some drug use and some girl on girl making out. This is, you know, this is 92, 91. So my head's spinning. And I'm with Mickey Rourke. And um, he wants to wear my vest. He gives me his shirt. We trade earrings. A lot of crazy stuff went on that night. I get home dizzy at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I tell Linda these stories, and she says, wow, this is great. Long story short, the more I did that, eventually she brought me in on Fridays to work with her at New York City. So I'm starting to get in. And then I just a lucky break. Mort Zuckerman, the big businessman, was going to buy the New York Daily News. And he did buy it, and he was putting together who he wanted to have. So he's taking from every newspaper. He didn't know me from Adam, but he loved Linda. Very attractive, uh, maybe late 40s, great column. And he wanted her. And she said, well, if I, want, if I go, I want to take you. Would you want to go with me? I said, yeah. He said, okay. He said, how much do you want to make? I said, I don't, I don't even know how to answer that. I mean, at the time, I think I had like $1,100 to my name. And I, 
And she said, uh, anything would have been an of upgrade. Of course. I just, but you didn't want to, you didn't want to sell yourself short at the same to, time. I didn't know what to do. So I yeah. just said, I don't know, 60,000. I just didn't know what to say. Oh, don't worry. That's fine. And you know, she'll be by the phone at two o'clock and I'll have an answer for you. And she's okay. We're in. We start next week. And I just suddenly I'm a New York daily news gossip columnist. And then I got very good at it. And the, the, the town got to know me, the city, I should say, because back then most columnists who did gossip were gay, English, female, there very weren't many guys like me doing it. In fact, there were none. So I really stood out and I attracted a lot of people around me. And, um, Linda eventually left the business and I took over the column and my stature grew in New York and then TV started calling and Hollywood took notice because I was mentioning stories about LA. I kept coming out to here and so it just blew up. And then when I left the paper, I kind of had to resign because the editor, Pete Hamill, who was my idol as a kid growing up as a writer, he didn't like gossip. He did not like celebrity reporting. Uh, So it was like, I want you to work on the city beat covering immigrants, the new immigrants who come to the city. And I said, that's, that's not something I want to do. He said, well, I can hire four reporters for what you're making. Because I started making a lot of money. It was so different back then. I can go in the office every, every three months and want more money, and they'd give it to me. It was insane. Plus, I had side businesses where the E channel would put a camera in my office, and I'd talk to the camera it's 20 minutes a day for the gossip show, hard copy, inside edition would send cameras to my office for me to give them sound bites. Bill, Bill, um, What's wrong with me? Bill O'Reilly was doing Inside Edition. He'd call me for stuff. What's going on today? What can I use on my show? Camera come to my office. I tell my story. Every one of those was $750, $600, $550. Suddenly, I'm making so much money just sitting on my ass in the office. So it just blew up from there. When I went to, when I was about to resign or get fired, however you want to put it, he let me resign. Let me cut you off. The, when you when you have all this like ancillary revenue streams, yeah, yeah. do you have to share that with your umbrella agency? No, or is that you, A.J. Benza? The me, my money. No, LLC. I, of course. My, no, A.J. Benza, my money, LLC. At this point, there was no LLC. It was just, it was just coming to me. It was all the checks assigned was, to A.J. Benza. There was Benza. no expectation that they get a piece. Cause you're Who? Under, Who's they? The news? Your, your umbrella No, company. not at all. Got it. No, the news paid me a salary to cover gossip, but whatever else I got on the side was mine. And whatever E paid me, it was all different revenue streams that were all mine. Um, and then... Did you like reporting I on loved celebrities? It. Well, I loved it for a long time. I started to tire of it around 96, 90, not 97. Because what happened is I got very involved with a girl who was a big model at the time. And she knew everybody. And everybody loved her. And, you know, Madonna, you, every big person knew her. So it got uncomfortable when I'd be reporting on people and they were friends of hers. It, I right. had to watch and look both ways. That's what I'm getting at. Like, yeah. Do you become an automatic pariah when you become a, a celebrity columnist or writer? It was, yeah, there was a, it's tough. It's tough. It you got to negotiate. Yes, yeah. a lot of that. Because a lot of times, the way I managed to get myself up to the higher levels um, was I wouldn't print a lot of things that I was privy to. I'd be in the room with them in, in, in rooms as tight as this. And there'd be drug use and what have you. And who's having an affair? And they would look at me as, you're not going to print this. You know, no, of course not. But then you take enough of that stuff into your head for months and years, and you start to get a lay of the land of what's really going on in this town, this business. And I became, I began, they began to fear me because now I know a lot. But you, but you need, so here's, the, here's the conundrum, right? You need access. Yeah. But if you give anything away, you're diluting your value. Yes. So you have access, but you can't say anything. So how did you balance well, the that? Way to, the way to keep your value or, or even to increase your value is I did a lot of favors for people. Some okay. very famous people who needed to be, quote unquote, saved or saved from predicaments. 
that would maybe harm their marriage or their business. So there was reciprocity. Oh, sure. Quid pro quo all the time. That's mostly what gossip reporting is. I've got something on you. If you don't want to write it, what can you give me to get the heat off you and I'll write about someone else? So basically, a lot of people were telling you stories about other people to get the heat off them. Mm. That happens a lot. Mm. And I mean, I got to be real frantic when you need it. You're staring at a blank screen all day and you've got to fill it with seven items, a couple of thousand words. It's daunting. And it's getting late in the day, and you start calling people. And listen, uh, I saw something last night. I'm going to run this story about so-and-so, Naomi Campbell, throwing a phone at her assistant. Oh, you can't do that. Naomi's going to kill me, her publicist would say. I don't care, Desiree, it's going in. No, 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 let me, let me, give, me give me a half hour. I'll get you something else. And then she'll find something else for me. And then you run that, and you save Naomi's ass, and they love you for it. And then Naomi hears about it. She likes you. The bottom line is after six years of that, it gets very tiring. You want to take a shower. Because every night I'm out till 3 o'clock in the morning. And every morning I'm up in the news at 8 o'clock. That's your office, right? Yeah, Being in the rooms. When I left left and did my column by 6, I'd go home, feed my dogs, you know, shower, just start going out at 8, 8.30, dinner with some friends. Before you know it, you're at a couple of clubs and a couple of other restaurants and you're drinking all night. I wasn't drugging too much back then. I had pain pills back then because I had a couple of back surgeries in the mid-90s that was just nagging me. But... Uh, but the L.A. scene is a different scene. I was never a gossip columnist out here, but it definitely followed me out here. So when I when I was about to leave the news, the E! channel, uh, a, a producer out there, Michael Danahy, said, listen, uh, well, I pitched a new show about this fish-out-of-water reporter, film noirish guy in the streets of Hollywood, suit and tie, you know, not the top hat, but almost like that Bogart, Cagney kind of guy, um, talking about all these dead celebrities and the famous scandals. Lana Turner, you, Charlie Chaplin, all those greats. I, okay. And I pitched you, and they thought it was a stupid idea. Then they said, wait a minute, it's a great idea. Because they'd already seen me on the gossip show for, for years. Came in, we shot a sizzle reel, always on my dime. They had no money to pay. And uh, we eventually got a 13-week commitment, which was enough for me to move out here. And then we did the 13 weeks, and they gave us 26 more, then 52 more. Then before you know it, we had 170-some-odd shows we did, a four- or five-year se- uh, career doing that. And that really got me noticed in L.A. Because back then, everybody in L.A. kept the E! channel on TV. It was just a natural thing. You got you Waiting got a, rooms, offices. Yeah, you got an entertainment news. It wasn't neat, mean. It wasn't biting. It was just enough to keep you sa- satisfied, satiated. So people knew me. I was on—the the show was on— a nauseating amount, like six, seven, eight times a day. Then they'd run marathons on the weekend. So it got me a lot of um, a lot of attention. And my quote-unquote star started to grow. And then I got some movie offers, and I did some films, and a couple of books. And it was dizzying. And at the same time, I'm single, and I'm going out every night still to enjoy all the success and the money. And then another, th- then you just get off your ass because the drugs take you and the, the 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 crazy girls you meet. And so, having done all this for now twenty years, I I've now taken this podcast the last couple of seasons, last couple of years, and just thrown up everything I know. Now I tell I I, I talk pop culture every day. Whatever's happening, I'll do the Golden Globes. I'll do. Is the, it a daily show? Every day I do I do a show every day that's uh, that's for Patreon members, but I do a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday free show. And uh, the Patreon's grown consistently. So I'll do, I'll do whatever's happening in the news. Whatever you read, I'll be on. I'll give you my own sense of what I feel. It's very biting. It's very sarcastic. 
but I know a lot of behind the scenes stuff. So I'll always offer that to, to listeners. So when you listen to my show, you get, you get inside stuff that other people just are not giving you. Cause I've got stories from so-and-so from five, six, seven, 10, 20 years ago. When somebody dies lately, the people who are dying lately in this town, I've had relationships with all of them. Danny Aiello, Frank Vincent, Robert Evans, I used to live with. So I always go on the air with some great stories to mm. tell. And I think that's what really attracts. And then I also tell the old stories. You know, I'll go into Mary Astor and uh, Charlie Chaplin. I just did Sonny Bono the other day because his anniversary of, of him dying on the ski slopes came around. And Wonderful segues all over the place here, man. Uh, you just mentioned Sonny Bono. Yeah. He was referenced by Carmela in the show. Oh, is that You mentioned yeah, past cool. cast people that have passed away. I'm going to transition you here. Before you, let me do it. Before you do that, okay. here's what happens. The show is so popular that I'm being seen everywhere. And the tagline of the show was, fame ain't it a bitch. That commercial ran constantly. So guys like Joe Pesci and Jimmy Gandolfini would see me out and would yell that at me because they got a kick out of it. I'm a street guy. I'm a knockaround guy. And those guys liked me. Jimmy got to be very nice to me. I'd see him at all the parties at this restaurant we went to called Ago, which is just went out of business last month. Great spot. De Niro owned it. Harvey Weinstein was part owner. It was the, the spot to be in. So one night, this is my one soprano story. Um, Jimmy just comes, one? Well, I have a ton. But Jimmy, <laughs> I'm just kidding. One night at one of the parties, I forget what's Golden Globe, Emmys, he won a, an award and he's walking around and he was really feeling good. And um, I knew I knew a lot of those actors from the old. I've done movies with those guys, Independence in New York. Before Sirico, the Sirico, Pastore. Yeah, Frank Vincent are buddies of mine. So uh, he says, um, I said, I got to get on the fucking show. I said, I want to be on the show so bad, but I talk to people and they just, everybody knows me as AJ from Mysteries and Scandal. He goes, yeah, I know, I know, I love that show. He said, let me talk to some people. So he gets me he gets me to sit down with Brad Gray. And, you know, Brad takes the meeting, and we have a nice meeting. And Brad says, look, I know you can do this show walking out of bed in the morning. You, you, you mix in with these guys. He said, but, you know, people know you as this guy. I said, I know. He said, look, I hope we go 10 more years. Maybe by then they'll forget the show. But the point is, eventually, I get, a, I get an email from work at work. And um, to make the, the producers of the show, Sopranos, wanted to have a scene where Jimmy is watching me, watching my show on television with Janice at the, in the couch. And they were going to give me five grand for the opportunity to have them watch my show. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So I ran into him again. And I said, is that you? He goes, at least I could do, you know, he's just, he was one of those guys that even he knew I couldn't be on the show, but he liked my show and he wanted me to say I was on the show. Um, that's the kind of heart he had. Um, so that's one story, but that's what happened. The show got so popular that now I'm on Sopranos. Did you audition for anything? No, no, okay. no. I didn't never audition for the show because are you Italian? 100%? Yes, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, but like I said, I, I I had no time to just audition and get a part in Sopranos because of what I, what I was doing every night on the you were e too channel. visible. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't have worked. It'd be like Bill Maher becoming a, a, a dramatic actor now. Right. But I had done movies before that, so obviously I could, but it just wouldn't have worked. So Jimmy. In, his, in, the, in the goodness of his heart, had an ep I think it's season three, him and Janice mm -hmm. were talking about, uh, um, he gives her some shit about, uh, yeah, we buried him on a hill with pine cones on top of it, you know, I think it was Cifarello or maybe April, I forget who died first now. Cifaretto. Yeah, I think it was Ralphie. Oh, uh, 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 Richie, I, I mean, April. Richie April. Richie April, April first, yeah. and then I know Ralph. Janice was upset about where he was buried. Yes. And then Tony gave her like, yeah, don't worry, we put him on a hill with some pine cones. At the bus you know? station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that episode. So, uh, it was a great thing to be noticed on that show. So just so on the good. business end of things, to have your show appear on their show, yeah. 
the rights fee, if you will, yeah. they came up with was five, five grand. grand. I don't know who negotiates that, but that's what I got. And um, Saturday Night Live did the same thing for me in the same season. They put me on with David Bowie and Jerry Seinfeld. Were you spoofed on Saturday Night Live? I wasn't spoofed. They had me on. They had okay. me in a sketch. They had me in two sketches. One sketch got cut. And all they wanted me to do was come on and say, fame ain't a bitch and throw a piece of pizza in the garbage. It was just Jerry Seinfeld was a fan of the show. So Did you was, trademark that? No, no. Well, we, we have Did recently, you go down that road? Okay. You know, for a while, for a while, it was not known who came up with it. I was in the meeting. The e-executives were saying some dumb stuff. They wanted Hollywood, my kind of town. It was like, why is death and why is that my kind of town? Like, and we came up with fame as a bitch. They were worried about the word bitch back then. This is 19, you know, 96, 97, but it stuck. And since then, um, no, E E was really not good about caring about shows they, they they don't even have a library of those shows anymore they're gone you can't go and find an old show of mine they when when the new it's a long story when the new people came into e new bosses who a new regime they didn't care about the old shows they all that's gone if it wasn't for a producer friend of mine Allison martino taking literal beta tapes that we made and taking them home and turning them to vhs i would never see the show again she uploaded them to youtube so there's a lot of our shows on YouTube because mm. of Allison, not because E wanted visibility or they knew how to keep shows. It's they were awful, but that's a whole different show. Um, so the visibility got big, and there I was on Sopranos, um, which was my favorite show of all time. Well, so you my, can imagine how I felt. What's your relationship to the Sopranos? Were you were you an appointment viewer from day one? Oh my god, I still am. I mean, I I saw it from day one. I got to be honest, from day one, the first episode. I'm a real Italian guy. I love Jimmy Gandolfini from his movies. And I, 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 the next day, I had a, a pitch meeting at HBO for a film I wrote. And I forget the guy I was sitting down with, but I, you know, there was Soprano stuff around. And I said, he said, yeah. He said, what'd you think? I said, I got to tell you something. I, I don't know one Italian man who puts his mother in a home. I don't get it. Doesn't work for me. We don't do that. We, our mothers live with us. They live with one of us. That We don't put them in homes. He says, well, there's things that are going to happen down the road that you might think otherwise, that maybe you'll know why, why Tony does that. I said, I don't know. I don't feel right. By episode three, complete, maybe by two, I understood, okay, she's a real bitch. You know, you can't have her near you. But it, it didn't sit Since right. childhood. <laughs> I know, but it didn't come across in episode one that, okay, maybe she was a little bitchy, but you put her in a home right away? Like, you'd, I would, usually your mother lives beneath you in the other, other part of the house. That's just the way Italians are in Brooklyn. Mm. But I understand completely by the second episode why he could not, you know, she was a treacherous, you know, treacherous bastard. Of course, from that point on, the show was my favorite show of any television show of all time. And I still, whenever still? there's, oh yeah, whenever there's really a, if I have time and there's nothing really on TV, I'll, I'll find it. And I'll just, you know, you find and you watch Sopranos, you can go back to any episode, any season. The writing is so brilliant. The acting is always brilliant. The people who guest starred and popped on did tremendous jobs. I. I liken it to a championship baseball team. I'm a big Yankee fan. And whenever the Yankees won World Series, there was always those guys that we got in trades in midseason or late season to come in, and we're going to need his bat for the Boston Series. And I'm sure enough, the guy hits three homers against Boston. That's what the Sopranos was like. Everybody they brought in. Joe Pantaleano, can he do this? Bang, he nails it. Can, can uh, I know I know Dave, uh, what's his name? Robert Loggia for well, a few episodes. But uh, what's wrong? Dave, April, what's wrong with me? Uh, David Proval. Proval, I know him for a long time. I loved him since Mean Streets. I knew he could do it. 
But then I knew like guys like Frank Vincent, I was wondering why isn't he on the show? Like he's perfect. And I found out that they, uh, they wanted him to audition for a number of years. And he'd said to them, I don't audition. I'm Frank Vincent. You know my work. And it came down again. They want you to read. And he said, I'm not going to read for them. They know who I am. They'll write something for me. And they, they did. And he nailed it. But that takes a lot of balls to say, I don't read. And because he didn't audition, they had a car roll over oh, his sure. head. Oh, <laughs> sure. That, that was that's David one of the Chase. Best. That's yeah, that one was of the David best. Chase saying, okay. No kidding. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Well, you know, when, you get, when you're in a show like that, you get the script and you just whiz through it to see if you're in the last few pages because yeah. then you know you're alive. Yeah. But I think when you're on a show that phenomenal and your death scene is treated, and, and, and he did treat most of the deaths. If it was, if, if you died too soon, at least he gave you a scene that you really, that the public would never forget. The death scenes are phenomenal in that show. Incredible. Even something as silly as, you know, Burt Young swinging the golf club. Every, every scene you go, this could go really bad. You, they got to be careful here. Because I know Burt for a long time, before I even did, well, way before Rocky Balboa, but I knew Burt as a friend of an uncle of mine in L.A., and I'd have dinner with him, and I know him as a very artsy, you know, he's a very art artistic guy, but very deep. I heard him on your he show. He sat in that chair. I know. I love him. And it's a huge, surreal thing for me. Isn't it? Isn't it? was for me to listen to. I was nervous for you because I know him. And I haven't talked to him in a number of years. He sounded like, you know, a little bit slow out of the gate. And I said, oh, shit. You know, I love Bert, but we're all getting older. He's got to be in his late, late 70s, right? And I know he likes to have a little fun now and then because when I did Rocky Balboa, I wanted to make a good impression. I'm going to ask you about that. Save Go it. ahead. We'll save it. Save it. Go ahead. Good. Um, any interactions or relationships with cast members or people, uh, a part of the show during your tenure doing what you did professionally? Do you have any stories from that dynamic? From, all, from the Sopranos guys? Yeah. Any untold stories that you have from that world, from that time? I did a movie many years ago called The Deli. It was a little independent movie by a guy named John Gallagher. And it's one of those movies where a lot of actors have one or two scenes. Chris Noth, Heavy D, Ice-T, Junior Sirico, a ton of people. And I was one of those guys. And my scene, my first scene in any movie was I get to sit with Frank Vincent. He's the mob boss. I'm his soldier, underling. And Debbie Mazar is his girlfriend in the scene. And it's in a bar. And um, I wanted to make a good impression because I loved Frank from Raging Bull playing Salvi. To me, that was, uh, that was amazing. Him and De Niro and Pesci. So I'm like, I'm working with Frank Vincent today. He liked me from the jump. But as I walked in there, it's very hard not to be nervous with these guys. But about a month before that, the famous... Hell's Angel motorcycle guy Chuck Zito had punched me out in a club and uh, punched you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a long story. It was an article in a magazine that that quoted me and it made it look like I called Chuck a rat. New York Magazine did a profile on me and I didn't call him a rat, but I couldn't explain to him how the writer juxtaposed the quotes wrong. And he punched me out in a in a, in a janitor's closet at the strip club scores. So that got around town. And Junior Sirico loves any kind of stories that pertain to street beating because he's a tough guy so i walk into this bar we're going to do the scene in and junior's there and he's got a tank top on and this is you know probably 92 and he goes hey there he is you know you sit you're still drinking out of us you're still eating through a straw you know just busting my balls about chucks beating me and he's being exactly paulie walnuts i mean that's who he is there's really no acting there that's junior and I'm like, yeah, hey, yeah, that's all right. Everything's fine. But I'm, I'm ruffled now because he's busting my balls. And now I'm going to sit down with Frank Vincent, who's got a different kind of power, a different kind of energy. He's got underground wiring. And I mean, we did the scene and it was really good. And uh, Frank got to like me and uh, we got to be friendly. So going forward, I'm still a gossip columnist. I had this 
argument slash fight with Tommy Mottola, Mariah Carey's ex-husband, the big record executive. He wanted me to go near his wife to make sure she was, um, he was nervous of her trying to get out from his marriage. And he said, look, keep tabs on Mariah. If she wants to talk to the press, I want her to talk to you. Because you're a street guy, I can talk, I can trust you, all that kind of shit. I said, yeah, Tommy, no problem. She said, call her and she'll give you some, uh, give you some stories of what she's up to. So I called her. What happens though, in the midst of our phone calls, we start to like the way both of us are talking and we're getting flirty. Very odd for me. So she's, where are you going to be tonight? I said, well, I'll be bouncing around town. So I found her at this place, Spy Bar, and she's on a date with Derek Jeter, who no one knew really. He was not, he was a rookie, but hadn't played Early yet. 90s. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of moved him out of the way to talk to him because I didn't, he was nobody yet. He was like a Yankee rookie who barely played. But he moved over. I sat down. I started talking. Look, Tommy wants you and I start talking. What do you, I don't care what Tommy says. I want to talk to you. It was very weird. And she gives me this number. So I start to call a number and I tell Tommy, yeah, I've been talking to Mariah. He says, when you talk to her? I said, I, she gave me the number. What number? I read the number. He goes, no, that's not the number. Throw the number away. You don't call that number. I said, I'm just telling you what she gave me, Tom. I tell her. She goes, don't give him that number. That's my private number. So I'm finding out their marriage is insane. Me and Mariah start liking each other. Like, we're flirty now. We're going out for dinners, got lunches, sneaking around. I met her in the Virgin Islands. Crazy. Not the, well, Bahamas. Tommy finds out, and he sits me down in his office, real mafia style. He says, do you know what I could fucking do to your career? You want me to have someone come through that door? And I gave him right back about the people I know, the people I'm with, because I knew a lot of guys back then, Gambinos and Genovese's who were tight with me, and fuck you, Tommy. So that kind of, we, we, we separate and agree to disagree, and I'll stay away from Mariah, blah, blah, blah. Now I'm at a party in the Hamptons with Frank Vincent, and Tommy Mottola walks over. And Tommy's saying, hello, everybody. Hey, Frank, you know. And Frank says, you know, my friend AJ, right? And Frank had no idea about our beef. And he says, he wouldn't even look at me, Tommy. And Frank says, you know AJ? And he won't look at me. And, and Frank says, what's his, what's his problem? I said, we had a beef about his wife. He says, you want to go? Fuck him, let's go. So Frank gets up. He says, Tommy says, Frank, where you going? He says, you don't want to talk to my friend? I don't talk to you. And me and Frank walked out of the restaurant in the Hamptons. And that's the kind of guy Frank Vincent is. So by the time the show came on, I knew so many of these guys' personalities, having been next to them, been friendly with them, that it was not surprising how the, how the TV show went. Um, I realized I threw a bunch of shit in there, like Matola, Mariah, but I was getting to the point where he's a stand-up guy, you know. If you if you have a beef with AJ, then tell him. Let's have let's let's hash it out. But to not look at him, well, that's a pussy move. And uh, obviously, they broke up. Then they're both with other people now. Well, now she's alone, Mariah. But um, yeah. Uh, then Vinny Pastor. Yeah, wait, wait, that was my era of Mariah. By the way, I was uh, no I was, I was, was looking at you. Mariah. I was looking at you wide eyes. Yeah. Because I used to listen to her music on repeat. Of Those course. albums, the yeah. the Music Box album, and the one prior to that. This was like prime time. Mariah. And was, you were sliding in on Mariah, yeah. man. That's yeah. a great ninety six. And I'm telling you, like I love that. Um, she was a goofy, sweet person. Her her outgoing message was the jerky boys. It was like a, it's so different than the Mariah you see now. Um, you have to stay relevant. I know, and and that's, I know. the game is the game, man. But she did want to be. She did want to be. Uh, she did want to sing more and 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 be around black hip hoppers and rappers more because she wanted to embrace the black side of her. Tommy did not want that. That's how this whole thing started. Mm. She doesn't know it's good for her. You know, he kept her in an ivory tower, but she but she wanted to embrace that side. He didn't want no part of that. He's, it's kind of like, a, like an old racist kind of attitude from the neighborhood. He will never say that, but that's what it is. How did he get so big? What was his rise? You have well, a, Tommy... Do you have a short nuts uh, and short bolts version, version on is, it? I believe he was producing, doing some pretty good people, but then he really hit with... 
Dr. Savannah's band. Remember the song um, Chez Chez La Femme? Chez Chez La Femme was a huge song in the late 70s. And this group, Dr. Bizarre's something, something band, they had a song called Chez Chez La Femme. Huge hit. Mm, I know the song. And they mentioned Tommy Matola lives down the road. So they put him in their song. And he was a, he was a producer, but nobody knew him. But that got him visibility. And look, the guy was great at signing people and managing their careers. And He had an eye for talent. Yeah. Or an ear for talent. Without a doubt. Without okay. a doubt. But that was the earliest I ever heard of him because of that, that song, Chez Chez La Femme. Yes, I'll take nothing away from him. But I always think to this day, he was best friends with the co-publisher of the Daily News, a guy named Fred Drasner. And when Tommy got hit, there was a hit job on Tommy done in Vanity Fair. Fred walked in my office and said, he threw Vanity Fair in my desk and said, here, they're talking shit about Tommy. Take care of this author. Find out about him and get some junk on this author. And then sometimes that shit happens when you're a columnist. I said, all right. So I got, figured out the author's name, but I, I got to write his name and I went around town finding that shit about him. And I wrote a column about this guy's an asshole. So it was real hit for hit journalism. That got Tommy to like me because I stuck up for him in my column. And then from there, I want you to help me with Mariah. And then me and Mariah started to get flirty. And then it just, it just went haywire on him. So it started out innocent and in uh, in good faith, and it got really weird. And I haven't seen Mariah in a long, long time. But um, business question: Yeah, you're familiar with Deadline? Sure, love Deadline. I feel like your career there could have been a window for for someone like you to be the person that created Deadline. Except the person who created it is is the person way I, more connected. I, I, yeah, yeah, forget her name now. I, gonna, Nikki. Yeah, Nikki Fink. Nikki Fink. Nikki. I know Nikki. She's great. My question is, why didn't A.J. Benza start a deadline? Well, if I'll tell you this. First of all, Nikki Fink was out here in L.A. when I was in New York, and she was really firmly established with so many sources in the studio system. And she, not system, but the studios and the networks. She knew everybody, so she was firmly entrenched. I was a guy in New York who was doing my gossip thing and then having all these TV success. And at night, I didn't care about starting a business. I just cared about going out, getting my stories, having a ball, getting laid, having fun. I didn't have that. If I had that mentality of, okay, I'm making a really good living. I'm going to segue. You didn't have the Tony Soprano captain of industry mentality. No, I didn't. No, no, no. I always thought my my goal was always, I'm going to take this. Because as a kid, I wanted to act. I wanted to be on television. That's my, my whole thing was I got to be a talk show host. I used to watch Merv Griffin, Johnny Carson, Mike Douglas as a kid and say, I want to do that. But when you're a kid, there's no way to tell someone, here's how you do it. Becoming a talk show host is... So when I got my talk show on E! eventually, we only ran for four weeks because they, they fucked that up royally. But when I got the talk show, I thought, I've arrived. This talk show is going to get bigger and I'm going to be a late night talk show guy. Not NBC, CBS, but I have my own niche. And when that went down the tubes, I really, to be really honest, I it, I was depressed for years. I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't come out and say it, but a lot of things I did and the ways I acted and acted out, it was because of how unceremoniously that show was just canceled mm. and I was treated like shit. And I didn't know, I didn't know how to handle that. And who does? Well, I should have been, I don't know. I shouldn't say I should have. It was such, uh, it was about to be, I had the blessings of people who, I wanted it to be a Playboy After Dark type show because I was I was with Hefner a lot at the mansion. He gave me his blessings. He thought, he said, if anybody should do this show, you should do it. I had so many great people behind me. In the meeting with E, when we were deciding if I could do, if I could talk to celebrities or not, I took my phone and put it on speaker. I called Jack Nicholson. I called Warren Beatty. I called Sean Penn. I said, I'm in the meeting with E. They want to know if I could talk to celebrities. I mean, this is how stupid they were. And they're listening to these, is that really them? 
So, thanks, pal. Thanks, pal. And that, I said, does that not convince you I can get people to talk to? They gave me a show. I mean, it took a few years, and finally that was the, the last the last stone. But then we they couldn't cast it because he had no connections. Believe me, they, people dropped out. I had to cast it alone. I called... Who's the parent companies? It was Comcast. Comcast. But back then, I can't explain. The PR people they had were nobodies. They couldn't reach out to real big stars. But once my show went on, once I started to get good guests, like, well, I had George Hamilton, uh, uh, Dan Rather, I had some, Heath Ledger. Uh, I had a lot of great people. And then I started, and Chris Rock was coming up, and some really good people that would make the show pop. And I'm going, leaving the hotel uptown to go downtown to shoot my show at this loft in Chinatown that I found. I put, I had alcohol in the green in, in, in the audience before anybody else did. It was a cool loft. It was a Chinese guy in the elevator who took you up. It was so fucking cool. And everybody went to the show at like nine. You hung out with me. There was a fire escape. Everybody hung around, drank. I went. I did the show in the audience. Everybody kind of participated. Very different than what you see now. And then after the show, we all go out in the town. And cameras follow me, and I'm AJ in the nightclubs, and I'm AJ. It was really cool. Um, four episodes in, I go to do the, the fifth show with Chris Rock, and they go, they stop me. What? Oh, we're not going to do the show. What do you mean we're not doing the show? They're not going to run the show. They're canceling it. They're canceling I'm dressed in the hotel, ready to go shoot. My family's coming. They come every night to see. We're not doing a fifth episode. No. And then there's a video somewhere my producer has that we kept. I said, turn your camera on. I'm about to rip everybody's asshole at E. And I called every executive, and I went ape shit. And that was the beginning of me. I didn't ha- Did I handle it right? I'm glad that I said what I said because they were all idiots for what they did. No one had the nerve to tell me what they wanted to do and that the canceling advertising, just underhanded, stupid shit. So I went ape shit and told them all off. And I had the other show running at the same time, Mysteries and Scandals, which was really popular and successful. And I went and I had a meeting with all my, I had like a team of six producers, six producing teams. So we're talking maybe 30 people. I said, this is going to happen. They canceled AJ After Hours and now they're going to cancel Mysteries. No, they're not. I said, yes, they are. They're not going to get rid of me. They are into me for several hundred thousand dollars. They got to keep me. I'm under contract. I can't say a word. You're all going to lose your jobs. AJ, that's never going to happen. And then about a month later, they had this fake fire drill. This is what E does. Everybody leaves. And when they go to come back in, their, their, their cards don't work. Their, their, email, their, their phone, you know, the, um, when you call your, your voice, that doesn't work. So they were, they were shut out of the offices to go back into E. And when they finally got let in, everybody had like a security guard in front of their office. They couldn't take anything out of the office. And they were all told the show's being canceled. You're all being let go. They kept me and my assistant, who I was dating at the time. That's how underhand. So yeah, I left really fucking bitter and angry. Mm. Everything was taken away from me, but they had me on the contract for a year, paying me a few hundred grand to not say a word. Now I'm on the Howard Stern show in New York. They give me a month to take over for Jackie Martling because you were a guest on his show. Yeah, or you but were I was hosting. They, they were letting me sit in, his, in the Jackie Martling chair for a month to maybe get that job. That eventually went to Artie Lang for ten years. I'm in the show, I'm in the seat for a month and I'm doing well, but John, stuttering John Melendez had a thing with me, he had a jealousy issue and... What's your relationship with Howard Stern? I love Howard, I'm not happy with what he's turned into. I'll always, I think he's the best interviewer who ever lived, the best broadcaster who ever lived. I learned so much from him. I'm not happy with where his show has gone. Why? Well, because he's become everybody he used to rag on. We all sat in Howard's studio and thought he was like us in high school. He wanted to make fun of the people who thought they were hot shit. Turns out we were wrong. 
he wanted to be with the people who thought they were hot shit. So now when you see him with Orlando Bloom or Jimmy Kimmel or Jennifer Aniston or Ellen DeGeneres vacationing or saying that he really thinks they're wonderful people or Ellen's a good dancer, you go, what the fuck are you kidding? We know you, Howard. You don't like these people. No, joke was on us. He always wanted to be them. So he wasn't that person that we were. It's very weird what happened, but I will say this. The guy's in his late 60s. He's done everything. He wants to tone his act down. He wants to be a different kind of broadcaster. He's certainly entitled to it, but I don't follow his show anymore. It's okay to evolve, but he might lose some audience. He did. He lost a ton, but he doesn't care because he's got hundreds of millions. He's allowed to do this. He's got a new wife. He saves kittens now. He he, he cleans up garbage on the beach. Listen, I think he, I, I love it, except he's not the guy we grew up with. And he was our rebel leader. So when I had the chair for a month, it was, it might've been my job. I have people in the inside tell me how I'd really like working with you. Would that have been an amazing gig for you? Would have been a quarter million dollar gig every morning, but it would have changed my life. I would have been not going out late every night. I had to be in the studio at 5 a.m. So that chair is a quarter million dollar a year at chair? At that point it was. It became, a, Artie got it, Artie got it up to a million. Wow. It's a big job. But I didn't, but I wasn't treating it as a career move. I thought, great, well, let's see what happens. As I'm doing it, I got to be honest. I'm doing drugs now. Now I'm doing cocaine because I'm very aggravated with losing all the gigs. So I'm not really myself. John starts messing with me on the phones and having people call in and make fun of my talk show, which got canceled. I couldn't say why it was canceled. I'm under, I'm under like a gag order from E. You can't do that to me. I'm like, I'm a fucking tiger in a cage. So one day I said, one more bad call comes through and I'm going to go in there and I'm going to smack John in the face. And everybody laughs. And he, the next call is him imitating someone else and making fun of my show. And I got up. And Howard said, come on, AJ. I said, no, no. Is this on camera? Oh, yeah. Public? Sure. YouTube? It's there? It was on his show show, the Howard Stern show. It's on YouTube everywhere. When you had your guy turn the camera on when you reamed E, is that public? No, that's a private private tape I have. Um, it's not really such a, it's not something that's so scandalous. It's just that you're oh, watching a, a guy. a moment of raw humanity. Yeah, you're watching a guy. I watched it with my friend. My friend Allison Martino has it. She's a dear friend. She's a great producer. And she kept it. And we, I was at her house recently, and we watched it about a year and a half ago. It's so emotional because we all lost our jobs and we were all together for five years and I'm ripping people a new asshole. And I'm friends with some of the people I ripped. Some of the executives are my friends, but a couple of them are just, you know. No, so I lost the gig on Howard Stern when I smacked Stuttering John. They, they said, we can't have you here. This, this is, you know, on call for it. Howard loved me and John didn't want me there. And the, 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 the big general manager said, I can't, I can't have you here, Jay. Howard called me. He says, I'm really sorry, man. It's, it's the best fucking radio we ever had. But, you know, let me see. Let me talk to so-and-so. I said, nah, Howard, don't worry about it. I didn't get, Artie got the chair and he got the gig. And I got to be honest, he did much better in that chair than I would have. It would have been a completely different show with me in it. Because Howard wanted me to come in from being out all night. Go home. Don't even shower. Go out. Come to work. Sleep from 11 to, you know, whatever. But make sure when you come to work, you're AJ Fresh. from the nightclubs. Yeah. So my life would have been so different. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure, I really wasn't looking forward to that, to be honest. But I did love sitting with Howard. But I didn't think I was losing a quarter million dollar job. But when I read the papers the next day, Benza loses radio career. It was just like everywhere. The Times, the News, the Post. I'm like, I did lose a career? I had no idea. I you, thought it was a no gig. You had no idea even had one. No, I thought it was a gig. And But now it's a career. It's a quarter million dollar. And then God knows it would have went up and up and up. So I'm more mad now. So it took me a number of years to calm down. Um, Fun question. I'm just going to ask it. I don't really care. You, you, <laughs> can, you can not answer it if you don't want to. Could you get him on the phone? 
If you um, called him, could you get Howard Stern on the phone? I email him occasionally. We, we talk to each other on email. So you do have a direct line of communication? I, yeah, I do. I okay. don't I don't call him because I've never called him. Okay. I've never, maybe once or twice. When he had his show, well, he still does, but back in the, in the New York days, even when I moved out to L.A., I would call them, and I'd always get through. When No matter what, I would call them like at 4 a.m. my time. It's 7 a.m. in New York, and the show's getting gearing up and i'd say i'm in an after hours on crenshaw boulevard i want to tell you guys what's going on and they loved it you know i'm out with so i'm out on a date with so-and-so last night let me tell you what happened so i always had an open line but him directly right now with a phone call i don't think i don't think he'd take it i think he might call me back but at least i write to him and he writes when he got the job at america's got talent I know Howard's very insecure about what he can do, believe it or not. He doesn't know how uh, good most, he is. Most creative geniuses yeah. are. Yeah. And he he was wringing his hands. And I got an email from him. I sent him an email saying, congratulations on the job. You're going to be great at it. And he wrote back. And I said, I don't know if I can do this, man. I, I don't know if I, what I got into. And he's getting so insecure. And I said, Howard, you're the. if anybody knows how to judge talent, you know, lesbian, dial date, homeless, Hollywood squares, you've always been that guy with these great ideas. You're going to be the best. And of course, he wrote a really nice thing back to me, and we all know he was great in that job. So, you know, and then when he just did his book tour, the most recent book he wrote, the last one of the one of the the chapter he kept talking about on Anson Cooper, Colbert, every show he did was Bill Maher was AJ's fight with Donald Trump on air. That was something he talked about in everybody's show. And I just I remember sitting home and looking at Stephen Colbert. My name's on Stephen Colbert's show. And they're, and they're shaking their head, Anderson Cooper, and, I, and people are coming, Anderson Cooper, they're talking about you on Anderson Cooper. I know. So I wrote Howard a letter like a year ago. I said, thanks for all the press, man. I can't believe this is great. You, you're getting people to remember me. Oh, man, that was the greatest show. We're at the greatest times. Isn't it wild? Pre- Trump's president. Remember that guy in the studio? Yeah, yeah. So I could talk to him. I ask it mostly just from a fun standpoint. Like if you, you can get him to take your call is my point. Yeah, perhaps, but I know that I know he'll return an email. But, okay. but for many years, that's what I mean. For many years, he he still would, but it maybe not be in twenty minutes. But he'll get back to me. I want to ask you two Sopranos questions, yeah. and I want to ask you about Rocky Balboa mm-hmm. and uh, Ransom, uh, Mel Gibson. Oh movie. yeah, the old days. Wow. Um, and then and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. Why are we talking about the Sopranos twenty fucking years later? I think in the same vein that. We will always watch. There are certain movies or television shows, mainly movies, where if it comes on, you you drop the remote and you're there. You're not gonna you're not changing the channel. You may pause it and get a sandwich, but you're there. It's that's it. Appointment. You found it. I said the same thing to Stallone about Rocky. And there's a number of movies like that. Guys like me uh, will just sit down and stop. Sopranos is the same. Has the same appeal, largely because many, many of us love mob films. We love that genre. And never has a television show, in my in my opinion, ever captured so many great actors in one show and kept it funny, kept it scary, kept it intriguing, kept you on your feet. I think it also helps that it was so Italian. I'm not sure if it was a, a show about the Westies, if I'd be as in, intrigued. I'd, I'd watch it. I love Ray Donovan. I could tape it and watch it two hours later. That's not the case with Sopranos. The night that came on, if my fucking phone rang on Sunday night, my echoing message used to say, if you're calling me now on Sunday at this hour, you don't know shit about me, you know. So we all have this amped up feeling about, I think, tremendous writing, tremendous storytelling, great actors, and... 
you know, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this because it's not, it's not that it's controversial, but growing up Italian, a lot of us have always felt, and I could be wrong, I don't give a shit, it's what we feel. There's that joke, you know, some people are Italian, everybody else wants to be Italian. Italians grow up thinking that. We grow up thinking everybody wants to be us. It's a very weird point of view. Obviously, we're wrong with a lot of people, but we just think that. So that's why we have such a love for the way we cook, the way we sing, the way we dance, the way we argue. We think, you'll like me because I'm Italian. And I think the guys and the girls on that show and the creators all have that in them. And there's a certain kind of hubris, uh, hubris that would, you'll, you'll like this. We have you. We have you already. That's what I think. I think, and then when you get the attention of people, when you can present them the kind of episodes and the kind of drama and comedy that they did, you can't miss. I think the honeymoon is on a very different tact is like that because a lot of us know what it's like to not have money, to live in a small place, to come from simple beginnings, to have a mother and a father that argued. It, it, it's something about it that strikes you real deep in your chest. And a lot of moments of Sopranos was like that for me. When Paulie's arguing with but, 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 but Big Pussy about the coffee makers, the espresso cans, and the, all Italians feel that way. For the fact that a writer could get that on a network show and have all of America and parts of the world understand that, you know, you're like, you sold me. Whatever the fuck else you write, I'm in. And then you put in the fact that you got a mob boss sitting down with a psychiatrist, which is something that is not supposed to happen. I'm a big guy with mob lore. I'm a, I've been friends with a lot of mobsters. I'm, I have mafia in my family from the old days. I know what you're not supposed to do. Not wear shorts when you're a grown man. Not sit down with a shrink. And all those rules they put on the show and the little sayings we have, boom, you're in. I'm in. That's what it's like for an Italian. That ranks as one of the best answers to that question. Oh, wow. Okay. So, thank you. <laughs> Thoughts on the movie coming out this year? How do you feel about it? I was very nervous about it because I don't like it to be diluted in any way. I've seen too many examples of great shows having reboots and spinoffs and ruining it. However, having seen Jimmy's son act on The Deuce, I'm very confident he's going to be really good. As And I'm not sure how big his part is. But I don't know. I, look, I, I think it'll be something we all see. I don't think it's going to be something we see two and three times. Having knowing nothing about it yet except the, the basic premise, um, you know, I, 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 of course I'll see it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to reserve judgment to say if it's going to be a classic yet. I like it, but I'm dying to see it. If you listened to the podcast in any capacity, you probably know that Rocky mm. is as near and dear to me as The Sopranos. What's your Rocky Balboa story? The best story I can get. I mean, first of all, him just casting me was phenomenal because I never thought there'd be a Rocky after Rocky V. And when I found out there was and I found out he wanted me to read, I couldn't believe he it. He being Stallone. Stallone. I came home from the movies. This is a true story. I have two quick ones. I came home from seeing the movies. I saw Jarhead with Jake Gyllenhaal. I sat down on my couch and I said to my wife, this is bullshit. I got to go out there. And I got to get some gigs. I got to start reading. I got to uh, audition. This is, I could do these movies. Not Jake Gyllenhaal's part, but there's so many. I was bitching. The phone rings, and it's my manager, Andrew Lee, Lear. Hey, Pope, they want you to read for Rocky Six. I said, there's a Rocky Six Because I hated Rocky Five. Oh! No, no, you can't. Tommy, a street fight with Tommy Morrison? I, I, can't. I can't. I love Rocky, but not... Five was like the sun. There's a lot of wrong things with that. But I said, of course, I'd read. I said, okay, do you know um, Sheila... What the fuck's her name? Jaffe. Yeah. I said, yeah, I know Sheila. I've met her. Yeah, yeah. 
I want you to be tomorrow. I said, great. I'm sending you sides now. And I'm watching TV, and that's when Terrell Owens, Drew Rosenhaus, the sports agent, was on TV, yeah, with the sit-ups on his lawn, and he's having the press conference, and every question was, next question, next question. He wouldn't take any questions. And the sides are for me to be this sleazy East Coast manager. And I'm watching TV, I'm watching Rosenhaus, and I'm going, this is, this is kismet. I'm watching the guy they want to have as the part. Now, I wasn't going to play, I wasn't going to do Drew Rosenhaus, but I'm like, I'll just be me, but I know this guy. I know that slimy East Coast manager guy. So I read. They said, great. Got a call from them the next day. Sly wants to see you. He sat down. He was playing golf in his room with a plastic ball. He said, so you want to do this? I said, yeah, I want to do it. Now, I met Sly 10 years ago in Miami. I went prior to, his, to yeah, 10 years prior to Rocky Balboa. Okay. He had a problem. Tango and cash era. <laughs> he had a problem with the uh, girl and, a, you know, his marriage. And it was a, a sticky situation. Bridget Nielsen? No, was that- it was it was Jennifer Flavin. And it was there was something going on on the side. And without getting into too much detail, somebody said, could you help Stallone with this? I said, sure. I went to LA, I went to Miami, sat down with him. He told me the story, walked me all around the house. I saw the Rambo statue, the Rocky statue. And I said, unbelievable. You know, went down, had to wine with him in the wine club and the wine basement. This you is know. Miami. Yeah. I mean, I did everything with him and I was, it was surreal. And I said, um, you know, why do you still do this, man? Look at, you got the statue, you got Rambo, you got Rocky. He goes, this is where I write. This is the room where I sit down and it all pours out of me. I said, what do you, I said, you did it already, man. This is, I'm thinking 96. This, that's the difference of a guy who wants to keep going and a guy who thinks you're good. I said, you did it already. How many actors are known for two roles like that? Rambo and Rocky, no one. And it was all that. I said, you're done. I, not you're done. You've done it. And he goes, yeah, I got so much more I want to tell. Now, so let's fast him. forward. Let's fast forward to how many more Rockies, Creed, how many more Expendables? That wasn't even out yet. Expendables. How many more Rambos? He's still going. This, this fucking guy is like nobody it. else. Yeah. Now, the, the story I'll tell you about Rocky is we I'm with them for three and a half weeks. I'm in Vegas at the fight, which was surreal, in the ring with Rocky. Didn't make sense. There's Burt Young. Didn't make sense, but I'm there. And um, I go away for a week to go back home to, to uh, L.A. because they're in Philly. They fly me out to Philly. I hadn't filmed for about a week and a half, so I'm maybe a little rusty. They're still in the day-to-day movie-making mode. I fly in. And the movie, it's the scene where I'm trying to convince him to fight my fighter, Mason Dixon. And we're in a little restaurant, Adrian's, tight like this. A lot of extras who all grew up with Sly. They're all his granddaughters, nieces, nephews, all the people who were his friends growing up. He's godfathered everybody in, in Philly. Fucking crowds outside with hundreds. So It's a religious experience it, it to is. go to those steps. Uh, uh, I took my four-year-old son there. Absolutely. And I, and I wept. Absolutely. Uh, because my son ran up the steps. I know. We've all done it. it is a surreal And I'll tell you what thing. happened to him the last time he ran the steps in, in Balboa. But uh, we're doing the scene. He's sitting across me. I'm not... The, the camera's over my shoulder. His is close-up. We're doing the lines about fighting. And I'm talking. I'm talking. I'm winging it. He's, he's ad-libbing a little bit. So I had lived back. Cut. All right. You know your lines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I thought since you're at, no, do your lines. I said, okay. Now, we, he was really good to me. We're good friends. We, I had cigars with him. We hung out. But I'm now walking back in the ring. Just do the way I wrote it. Okay. Let's talk. go again. Now, Lou DeBella's sitting next to me as the promoter, and he's looking at me. We're getting a little nervous. I go again. Cut. What's wrong? I said, I, I, I'm, do exactly what I wrote. Just don't change it. Okay. He goes, Hulk, give me five. He walks away. He's drinking a bottle of water that said Stallone on it, like he was starting to market his own water. I guess that didn't work. 
Lou goes to me, what the fuck? How are you going to finish this scene? And I was, was shaking. I really was shaking. You were shaking. Oh, yeah. I was, like, I was rattled. I said, oh, I'll get through I'll get through it. He came back. We did it. They changed cameras. Now it's my close-up, and he's fucking with me. He's saying all sorts of shit you'll never hear on film. You know, what do you recommend? Try my fried asshole. You'll never hear those lines. But there's a scene, there's a, there's a moment in that movie where I laugh so loud at the table. It's because he fired one of those lines at me, try my fried asshole, which doesn't make it. He says, I think it's all good. It's all edible. The point is, yeah. don't fuck around with a movie star's close-up. That's what happened. I would, it's his close-up, and I was, he was saying, slow it down. He said to me, you wouldn't talk to Rocky Balboa the way you're talking to me. You, you're talking to me like you're talking to Mason Dixon. You talk to Rocky Balboa differently. And I said, okay. And then I did the movie. We shot it after the scene. It was my last scene. My whole family was there watching on the other side of the room, outside the room. Because you're video. a fan. Oh, sure. Yeah. Since, since, since 13. Yeah. I'm like 13 years old, Rocky, Rocky in the theaters. And now you're doing lines with the guy. It, it's, it's better than being on the Declaration of Independence. It really is. So he goes, scene ends. My family's with me. My sister loves him. You know, she's, she's his age. He goes, Listen, I only gave you shit because you could take it. You're a good fucking actor. If I talked that way to Milo, he would have cried in the trailer for a week. That's what he says to me in front of my sisters, my brother-in-law, and my nephew. I was, I feel like a million bucks. He says, what are you going to eat? We're going to go to uh, Ruth Chris. Kevin, come here. Tell them the dinner's on me. You know, go have, you know, six of us go to Steakhouse, Sly pays without even being there. It's Philly. If Sloan says he's paying, <laughs> they're going to get the money. So that, that ended. The movie comes out phenomenal, you know. But then... Um, Oh, the other story was real briefly about... If um, he ran for mayor oh, in Philly... Oh, God. He would win tomorrow, he'd right? Be, he, he'd be really close to being president one day if he wanted to, which yeah. he won't. Here it is. We're doing Balboa. Uh, they sh shoot out a sequence, naturally. So when I'm, uh, when I'm in Philly, I was there a day early. They shot the last scene of him doing the steps. And um, it's not a, not a bad day out, but he said it's supposed to snow. It's supposed to snow. And it's not snowing. And they got everything set up for the snow. They got the cameras, the lights, and they're burning money, and they're going, Sly, it's not going to snow. He says, no, it's going to snow. It's going to snow. And sure enough, it fucking starts snowing. And that's when he says action. And he does the run. And he does the run, and they do it. They get it. He comes down the stairs, and he's sitting on the curb, and he's emotional. And a few of us are around him, and, and Kevin King Templeton, who was his producing part they're not together anymore but he says uh come on what are you he says no nah, i just can't believe it's over i can't believe i'm i'm, I'm done with rocky you know, it just it's you know he wasn't crying but it was really emotional and then kevin then came by him and said come on you got more to do get the fuck off the step we gotta go but i mean to see him there to be a kid 13 years old and be in the movie theater with your girlfriend and argue with her because she fell in love with his arms and i'm 13 fuck him man my arms are big you know i, I was so jealous but we wanted a beast alone. And now to work with him, then to see him crying, at, no, emotional at the steps. It's definitely the most amazing experience I've ever had in this town. The book I'm writing now is all about those experiences with big stars and celebrities. And that's one of my sample chapters I've sent out to people, that experience with him in the restaurant, facing your idol, you know, being dressed down by him. It's shocking when you're around someone that big. You know, you, you, get, you get to see what kind of small person you are. Not to mean that you're inconsequential, but we're so small to be next to a man who's done all this work. And God knows he can go 20 more years with his ideas. He's a brilliant writer. I hope, I'm praying one day before things get too bad and people get sick, he's got to get an honorary Oscar. He's got to get a special Oscar just to thank him for all the stuff he's given this town. If it doesn't happen, listen, it's happened to, to people who are very famous, so I shouldn't say 
It, it, it could not happen because some people are assholes. Maybe he's ruffled some feathers. You know, you never know who slept with who. 20 years ago, he rankled somebody on the Academy board. But God knows if they go just by talent and production and what he's done and what he's given this business, he deserves a statue in this town. Look, man, if you were to take uh, an alien that just landed on Earth for the first time and you were to tell them Mount Rushmore, they said, what is the Mount Rushmore of Hollywood? Yeah. His face is on it. I would agree. And if his face yeah. isn't on it, then you're agree. just, I, you, then you're harboring some sort of... Yeah, it's a, you're angry about something. About something. I remember doing the red carpet in Rocky. I took my wife and my son. My stepson was uh, maybe 15 at the time. And um, we got there late. It was traffic, whatever. And we're on the red carpet. And... It, just the way it worked out was Stallone was in front of us. No, Schwarzenegger was in front of us and his wife, me and my family, and Rock and Sly and and Jen. And I think his children were there. I was in the middle of those two fucking giants on the red carpet. It's like no one's going to ask me questions. Not with Arnold there and Sly behind me. I could just walk right through. But my son was enthralled because Big uh, the Ma- uh, Three Six Mafia sings a song in that movie. Uh, and he loved that group. It's Mason Dixon's in- yes, intro song. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he loves that song. And that's a whole other story. Walking in the ring in Vegas and hearing the crowd scream for Sly because they're hearing high hopes being played in the, in the fight. They didn't know Sly was going to walk out. That was all staged. He borrowed HBO's equipment. He borrowed the lighting. It was all like, if we can get in and out of the ring between the fights, we'll cut this for the movie. So when you see us going in the ring, Sly going in the ring... The exits and entrance into the ring for the fight are all on HBO's cameras, sports cameras. He worked out a deal with HBO. So the, the crowd in there had no idea Sly Stallone was going to walk out. So when they start playing High Hopes and he comes out, they're screaming in Vegas. They know something's going to be the next Rocky. Then I come out with Mason Dixon. They don't give a shit who I am. The shit they were throwing at us is real. The ice cubes are hitting us. I'm supposed to have some lines with Mason Dixon. Because the crowd is sensing that Rocky Balboa is going to fight this guy? Yes, but the point is no one knew there was going to be a Rocky Balboa fight. They weren't sure who he was going to fight. They weren't sure about the movie details. They knew it was being made, but they didn't know it was going to show up that night at the fight. They were seeing, it wasn't Roy Jones. I forget the fight. But anyhow, they were just treated to this remarkable scene of Stallone walking out and then walking out with some bruises on his face. And then, of course, we shot three different endings. He won the fight. He lost the fight. There was a draw. He wanted three endings, so nobody would know. I hate that draw shit, man. I know, but he wanted no one to tell the story after we shot. Hey, he loses this fight. He wins this fight. Right. You know what I mean? So That's very Sopranos-y, too. You know, alternate endings, because you don't want to ruin the the, the kick. No, you can't. It's too big a story. In the interest of time, I'm going to cut some stuff, sure, but I, I, I love the. I could talk to you about Rocky for like <laughs> yeah, I know. fucking three weeks. I can go forever. Trust um, me. Thoughts on the franchise. What's your favorite Rocky? One. It'll always be one. One and two go neck and neck. Um, one still makes you emotional at the end, right? Yeah, of course. When he's screaming. Yo, Adrian, we did it is something oh, that God. I'll never. Although, yeah, look, yo, Adrian, we did it. And then when he says it at the graveyard by the tree with the chair. You know, only Rock, only Sly could do that. The touch of the chair and the tree, sitting down with your wife. He nailed, because I said to him, Adrian's not in this one. He said, no, no, she's not. And I said, when he cast me, I said, she's going to be pissed. He goes, no, it's okay. He says, but I, he knew he couldn't cast a beautiful girl. Not to take nothing away from Geraldine Hughes. He knew he had to find someone that was a decent actress. He said, if I put in a beautiful actress, they'll kill me. They, I can't. I gotta, it's got to be somebody. But the point is, him sitting down at the graveyard and saying, talking sweetly to her, it, it's another moment that it's a killer. So one has to be it, and then two, and between me and you, I tend to forget which one is three and four. I know Clubber Lang, and then and then Mr. T. Thunderlips. Thunderlips, and then, of course, That's Dolph. Three. And then Dolph Lundgren is four. Dolph's four, and yeah. then 
five, you lost me. Five, so my, my whole thing with five, the redeeming <laughs> quality of five is the final montage with the Elton John song. Oh, okay. Where they that's recap good. the whole thing. Yeah, that's good. That alone makes the movie for me, man, because I'm crying the whole time, well, the, now, whole, listen, the whole way through. Of it's, course. It's all nostalgia. This guy's whole story is a million to one right fucking there. shot. Well, that's it. And in these simple, poignant lines, like, what you know, you fall down, you just keep yeah, getting up. How hard you get hit, it's how you hit how, back. In, listen, it's so I, fucking I, I brilliant. I'm going to my son's football draft tonight. I coached my son for the last six years in soccer football, basketball. He never saw Rockies until daddy was in. Then he saw it. But he doesn't know Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4. He will eventually. But it's every everything you tell a kid in the field, the Rocky music, gonna Same. fly now. Same. Oh. It's it's perfection. Yeah, it is. That alone uh, puts him on the rush more. But like I agree. The, the commerce aspect of it is, you know, like the, the billions and billions of dollars yeah. that he's spread across this hillside. My God. Um, you knew John Gotti. What sure. was your relationship with him like? Uh, in the in the uh, mid '80s, I had a cousin who worked in that field, you know, uh, with those guys, and I was in that profession. Yeah, yeah. I I was doing something called I was working for a sports tout. I was telling gamblers who to bet on, and they'd pay me a percentage. And cutting the story really short, uh, short. I had a big gambler. He had no more bookie. Guy lived in Colorado. I went to my cousin Albert. I said, I need a bookie. He goes, running through my, my friend's operation in Queens, my friend John. John wasn't a boss yet. He was a soldier in the Gambino crime family. I said, okay. So I talked to John. He introduced us in Queens. I said, I got this gambler. How much did you bet? I said, you can bet 10000 a game. Were you we'll nervous? take him. No, you, you talked no, very I, casually. No, because I knew gangsters. My, my okay. mother's side was gangsters. I left at my table a lot. I, and he wasn't John Gotti yet. So he's a tough guy, definitely. I knew those guys. So I said, yeah, yeah. he said, yeah, I haven't been in. He said, have him send us five, have him send you $5,000 up front as good faith money. And then uh, you keep half of that. And then what I'll do with you is every time he loses, I'll give you half of what they lose. So whoever you bring me, it was called half sheets. Whatever gamblers you bring me, whatever they lose their first week, you get half. So if guys lose 10 grand, you get five. And once they start winning, we're off, we're done. I said, great. So I brought him a couple of guys, but this guy, one guy, Paul Hicks from Colorado, I began to give to John and he got, he got started to lose a lot, and then he started to win. Then he was stuck tens of thousands, and they couldn't find him anymore. And that's when suddenly John Gotti in December of 85 becomes the boss. And I didn't know it was going to happen. Now I'm dealing with the boss, and my guy is stuck for like $27,000, and we can't find him. And now it's on me. And it's on my cousin Albert, because we vouched for this gambler. I didn't know the guy. He was from Colorado. He was a good guy, but... I, I find, and back then there was no cell phones. You called someone's home. That's it. And he wasn't picking up. Or you had to mail a letter. And I got a letter back. The house was abandoned. He's, and this guy was a major investor. He was in gold mines. Finally, I found him. I said, Paul, you can't fuck around. This is not your gambler in Colorado. It's not an old guy on the porch. These are the guys in New York. You're stuck. Johnny, I, I was called Johnny back then. It's a whole different story. He said, Johnny, I swear, I'm going to go one more weekend, and, and, and then I'll pay him half what I owe. And then I... Okay, Paul, I'm warning you. He lost 13 more. The week later, he sends a check for 500, which is like, fuck you. John gets on the phone and calls me, and he says, it was Thanksgiving morning. And my mother was petrified because she didn't want me to talk to Albert, our, our black sheep cousin, because she knew I'd get in some drama. And John said, my family's cooking turkey. And he says, you're going to go to Colorado, and you're going to find this Paul Hicks, and you're going to tell him that no one makes, he, he said, in a business with no ethics, we got to have ethics. I'll never forget that line. He says, you know how to ski? I said, no. Well, you're not going to go skiing in Colorado. You're going to find Paul Hicks. You're going to get my fucking, you know, this very colorful, crazy language that you hear on television now. But coming across the phone on Thanksgiving morning, it's petrifying when you're 
whatever, 28 years old. But when he became boss, I guess he had too many big things going on and who knows what the fuck was happening. And one day Albert just came to me and said, it's over. It's done. What do you mean? It's, he's, don't worry about it. I said, no, Albert, I don't want to walk around nervous. He's, no, it's not. It's done. He's, just don't worry about it. And then he was up for his trials in New York. By this time now, I'm a journalist at Newsday. And I started going to the trial. And I'd watch him, and he'd see me in court, and he'd wink at me, and he'd shoot me a look, and I said, okay, it must be all right. And I kept seeing him in court. And then I went and followed him to lunch at this place called Jambones, where they'd go in the recess. Him, Sammy the Bull, Jackie the Nose, and I'd sit a table away. You thought you were in trouble with him because you didn't get the job done in Colorado? I didn't get them, because my guy stiffed them tens of thousands of dollars. And when you vouch for somebody, it means you vouch for him. That means if he can't fuck, if he fucks us, it's on you. It was, a, it was a much bigger world then. There was no internet. There was no cell phone. You couldn't find a guy. So anyhow, it went away. When I started to see John in court and follow him into uh, the restaurants, and I'm, now I'm a young journalist, I started to pitch a column at the papers where I wanted to write about John's entrance into the courtroom every day, what he was wearing, what he smelled like, what people were saying, because it was like a movie star going to court. And I had this little column about the suit, how much it cost, what kind of tie, and you got to go back to all it was was newspapers. Uh, it wasn't something you read on the web. It was just how many people were writing about John Gotti walking to court back then? Three? And I was one of them. So he got to like that. John liked that attention. He was a media whore. So he liked me. He liked me do that. And one time Sammy the Bull said, you know, it was his kid, you know. And John said, no, he's, he's more right than, he said, this guy is with them, meaning the journalists, because they get nervous. He goes, no, he's more right than them. He knew Albert was family. And uh, he just knew, he, he, one time he said to me, you went to college, you, you, you know, make your mother proud, you know, uh, you're doing the right thing, you know, like stay away from what we're doing. Um, so I, I liked the guy. I, I can't say I was very, very close with him, but I had a little bit of business with him. He was good to me per se, but I've been on the other end of the phone when he's mad at you and those voices recordings you hear on 60 Minutes and all those shows where he's talking about taking someone's fucking head off. I know that voice. It came in handy when 20 years later at, the, at in New York, when I had some tough guys after my roommate Chico and they came to me because I vouched for Chico. I, I've already been through it. I know these guys. They're great to be around. You drink for free. You got the best stories. You have the best. But when they're wronged, it all changes. So that's why wrapping it up and bringing it full circle, seeing The Sopranos, it rang so true to me because I've been on those the, the 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 meetings, the sit downs, the good times, the grappa, the broads, the strip clubs, and now one day you got to answer to somebody, and it's just they nailed it, and you can't nail it just by talking to people. What's it like? You only can nail that when you've been there. So David Chase and a lot of those guys, Junior Sirico, a lot of guys who've been around that set know that world, and they bring a lot of here's what really happens here, and you nail it. Well. AJ, you nailed this. <laughs> Man, this is great. So thank you. Uh, what's the name of your podcast? My podcast is called Fame is a Bitch. It's pop, it's pop. Uh, what's the word? What's wrong with me? Pop, pop uh, culture. Pop culture, showbiz, anything happening in the news right now regarding show business and old showbiz stories, you'd like it. I, I let loose every day. AJ, thank you so much. Anytime, man. I love it.